What Happened When Monday is brought to you by 1FMC.com. When you're getting ready to buy your next house, why not deal with somebody you know? Me, Conrad Thompson and First Family Mortgage. We're happy to hook you up. If you're already a homeowner, well, we can get you a better deal on your current home. If you're in a 30-year loan, what are you waiting for? You're overpaying your single biggest bill, and you may not even realize it. Maybe you've got some debt you'd like to get rid of, a second mortgage, some credit cards. Wouldn't it be nice to get rid of a car payment? We can even show you how to skip your next two house payments. But maybe best of all, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. If we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. Call the number one best in business. Call First Family Mortgage right now at 888-425-0105. Check us out online and get a quick quote right now at 1FMC.com. Although I'm here in Huntsville, we're licensed in 21 states. I'd be happy to help you save some money. And if you've got any questions, message me directly on Twitter at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, NMLS number 65084. This is the MLW Radio Network. And you're listening to What Happened When? Monday, right here on the MLW Radio Network. And the man with the plan, Mr. Tony Schiavone. Tony, what's going on, dude? How are you? Hey, Conrad, I have no freaking plan. I never have a plan. That's why I'm, uh, that, that's why I'm the, the situation I am in life. But it's good talking to you again. You're a fine-looking young man, I may have to say. Well, I appreciate that. I, uh, I got to tell you, I'm having fun with this. Our Clash of the Champions episode last week was probably the most well-received episode we've done so far. Would you agree? Yeah, I would I would agree. I, I think there's a want for the old Crockett days. I think a lot of fans miss that. Uh, and, of course, uh, I did work behind the scenes in that. So I, I agree. I got a lot of good response. I do want to say about uh, our T-shirts. T-shirts selling uh, quite well, and I appreciate it. I've been calling uh, some of our uh, uh, our people who have I haven't been able to make all the calls yet to our t-shirt uh, buyers but it does mean a lot and uh, some of the uh, some of the designs of the t-shirt are pretty spectacular and I do appreciate that so uh, thanks to all of that thanks for listening here thanks for following on Twitter uh, thanks for following WHW Monday and thanks for uh, getting in this poll and voting on what you want to hear us talk about on WHW. What happened when? We're pretty fired up about it, man. Uh, all these t-shirts uh, keep getting cranked out every week, and uh, it's great fun. Go cruise over and check it out. It's ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And as you heard Tony allude to there, when you place an order, he's going to give you a call. He wants to personally reach out and thank you for your business and supporting the show. And you've got lots of fun designs over there. Uh, we've had some fun with Tony's old blocking spree. If you've been listening to the show, you're in the loop on that. We've got Eat, Sleep, Block, Repeat. We've got the Great American Blocked Party, which is pretty timely. We've got the old Starcade logo with the Shivani logo right in the middle. The old Slamboree logo. WHW Uncensored. We might actually change that to WHW Unblocked since he started unblocking everybody. Maybe my favorite shirt, though, the big gold belt, and it's spray-painted. Instead of NWO, it's WHW, but what's awesome about that shirt is the placement of the belt. It's not right in the center of your chest. It's down and at an angle, so it looks like you're playing air guitar. If you heard our conspiracy theory about Hulk Hogan and the first Nitro, 
we have got a shirt for you. Pasta still rules in the classic red and yellow, but perhaps my favorite new shirt. Everybody remembers the Shockmaster. What's better than that? The Blockmaster. Tony Schiavone <laughs> has a Blockmaster shirt. It doesn't get more fun than that. Cruise on over at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And I want to give a special thanks to Bix from Pro Wrestling's uh, favorite podcast, besides this one, of course, Between the Sheets. Uh, he helped me a great deal this week with the research. Uh, and, of course, our great friends over at MidAtlanticGateway.com helped a great deal on last week's show. And Dick and David have a tremendous interview series with Tony up now over at MidAtlanticGateway.com. So you'll get all the Tony Schiavone Crockett information you need at MidAtlanticGateway.com, but probably a few less fucks. Would you agree with that? Fuck yeah. There you go. Absolutely. We use uh, fuck like a comma uh, on Dick this Bourne program. Dick and David Chappelle are good guys, and uh, I don't think David cusses, especially I don't think he cusses in court. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. Yeah, they have much. Uh, they're not near the potty mouths that Tony and no. I are. So if you if you want this information without fuck being used like a comma, midatlanticgateway.com is your hookup. They have much more class than I do. Oh, and me. And that doesn't take much, you know. Yeah, well, obviously. You know. Okay. Uh, let's do it. What happened when Jim Crockett promotions presented the fourth annual great American bash in Baltimore on July 10th, 1988. So by this point, we're knee deep in 1988. And if you haven't already, you should go check out clash of the champions. One, that episode is in the archives and it kind of lays the groundwork for this one. But as a uh, quick, quick recap, this is the third pay-per-view offering. Uh, for Jim Crockett Promotions. We touched on Starcade 87 and Bunkhouse Stampede last week uh, on our Clash of the Champions episode. And the Clash was, of course, on free TV. The next major event after that for Jim Crockett was the 88 Crockett Cup in April. Uh, and then in June, uh, we had Clash of the Champions 2. But this is the next pay-per-view. Uh, and this is kind of a critical time for Turner's involvement. Uh, in February of 88, Broadcasting Magazine had an article that quoted Steve Chamberlain, the vice president and general manager for Turner Home Entertainment, and they announced they planned to do two pay-per-views in conjunction with the NWA and Jim Crockett with the events happening in July and then either December or January. Of course, that wound up being Starcade. They planned for the events to run two and a half hours in length, and they promised at least 10 bouts. And said it would be priced somewhere between fourteen ninety five and nineteen ninety five, depending on when it was ordered. The idea being they wanted you to order early. If you waited and tried to do it day of or weekend of, they would jack the price up a little bit. Uh, they're quoted as saying, "THE THE expects to clear a minimum of six million cable homes with a six percent buy rate, which is a pretty tall order." Uh, they were also working at that time on negotiating deals with Request TV, Viewer's Choice, and Home Premiere. Uh, and prior to this, we should mention, they had run two pay-per-views, but those were standalone efforts. So this is the first time uh, that Turner is actually involved in the pay-per-view side. Uh, and previously, TBS had only experimented with pay-per-view showing Atlanta Hawk basketball games on Prime Cable in Atlanta. But now they've seen some momentum with the videotape sales. Uh, they're quoted as saying five of the tapes, uh, I guess they did six, but five of the six were priced at $39.95 and sold more than 30,000 units, which was considered high for specialized material 
is the way they phrased it. Tony, lots of questions about this announcement and Turner's involvement here. Uh, first, any memories about Chamberlain? Yeah, Steve Chamberlain was a good guy. Uh, he was one of the good guys at Turner that really had an interest in wrestling. We all thought he had uh, he was pretty smart, pretty savvy business guy. Story about him was uh, on, I believe, one of these video cassettes, the Great American Bash, which was the Great American Bash, and you need to lead me through this here, Great American Bash from the uh, Charlotte uh, Stadium. Yeah. Uh, he was watching that, and uh, he was watching some footage of it, and we were using uh, Jimmy Valiant's music, uh, The Boy from New York City by Manhattan Transfer, which was his entrance music. And Steve Chamberlain said, we are using this music, this copy, this this copyrighted music? And I remember us saying, yeah, we're using it. He said, you can't use that. You can't use this music without paying uh, the uh, the rights fees with it or, you know, BMI ASCAP. Uh, and so in that video cassette with Jimmy Valiant, they completely took the music out as he was coming in. And that began a, a tradition now or a change for Jim Crockett Promotions. We used to use anybody's music. And now, because Steve Chamberlain came in and said, you got to start paying for that, we stopped using that. And that is why, in the Great American Bash that we're going to be talking about in 88, we used very, if you'll recall, generic music. Yeah, we're like Lex Luger and uh, the Horseman and Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard and, and Barry Windham. And, and obviously, that's all been butchered uh, to an even crazier level if you watch on the network now. But for that exact same reason uh, that Tony just laid out. Do you remember there being a real contrast as far as the way the shows were produced once uh, THE was involved on these events, or did nothing really change? Well, except for the music, I don't. I don't think much really changed. I, I you go back and you, you look at some of these shows. We were still very, uh, still very uh, behind the times in production value for our show compared to the WWF, which was the WWF back in. Uh, but uh, there was a more of attention paid to us with Turner Home Entertainment and uh, and more attention paid to what we had to do, so we did uh, things a lot differently. Tommy Edwards uh, was now more involved in our pay-per-views because Tommy was the director for the uh, TBS uh, shows that we shot at the studio. Uh, Tommy now got involved in the uh, pay-per-views as well, so we had a lot more uh, Turner people involved in what we were doing. Do you remember um, producing or working on any of these videotapes? They referenced the six here, five of which sold really well. No, I did not work on any of the video uh, tapes, which is kind of odd because when I went to work for the WWF, that's right. what I worked on exclusively, videotapes. Yeah, that's that's kind of what prompted my thinking there, which right. uh, I agree is a little weird. Do you remember any grumblings from the boys about how they would be paid on pay-per-views? It seems like... You know, now we hear a lot of talk from, uh, you know, guys in the UFC and, you know, guys in the world of boxing, and they really hype up, you know, how their pay-per-view income is affected. Because most of these guys have some sort of clause where they get, you know, a fee to show up and a guarantee, so to speak, but then they get a piece of the pay-per-view had anybody started thinking like that back in those days, or was that still not something that had evolved with professional wrestling? No, I, I think they were thinking like that. They, I know they were thinking like that. Boys always grumbled about payoffs. Sure. 
Uh, and uh, they, they even crumbled about now that we're on pay-per-view, how are the payoffs going to be based? You know, that was back before uh, – that was back when the boys got paid on – I call it on 1099s, uh, didn't have health insurance, and uh, uh, they were independent contractors. And a lot of times they were paid and they were unhappy about about being paid. I remember uh, the year before that, the Great American Bash of 1987 – uh, when we went to all the stadiums, if you'll recall. Yeah. And I remember going to Philadelphia at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, and we had what we thought was a tremendous house that night. The lower bowl was mostly full, and I remember hearing the uh, I remember hearing the gate being uh, told to the boys and me to be the gate was two hundred and twenty thousand dollars a gate, and no one believed it. And everyone believed that they were going to get paid on that $220,000 gate, but they believed that uh, there was a lot taken off the top. Whether it was or not, I don't know. But, yeah, the grumblings always happen, and they heighten even more when we started on pay-per-views. But keep in mind, I don't think uh, the business realized how much a cash cow a pay-per-view could be back then. And, and there's a lot going on at this point in the world of professional wrestling. After riding high in 86, the Crockett's business starts to slide a little bit in 87, and that's when expenses get out of hand. Um, the Crockett's uh, buy out Watts, open that Dallas office in 87, and then they start to get into pay-per-view, and that takes the battle with Vince McMahon and the WWF to a whole nother level. And that's all in our episode last week, Clash of the Champions 1. Uh, but we're back at it here and this time we're running a pay-per-view and finally we're unopposed from the WWF who are running shows this night in both Las Vegas and New Jersey, neither of which are televised or on pay-per-view. Uh, but Vince couldn't help himself and ran Baltimore, uh, with Savage DiBiase on top, fresh off of their WrestleMania main event on June 25th. So just a couple weeks prior to this show and the WWF would draw 7,000 fans or so to that house show. Uh, Tony, do you remember there being a sense of relief that finally you guys were running a show that wasn't being counter-programmed? Yeah, there was. Uh, there was also a uh, a feeling that maybe uh, we were making headroads uh, within uh, within cable systems, and uh, I don't think there was any question. We felt very, very good about about that, and felt very, very good about uh, you know not uh, not having to worry about going up against Vince McMahon. Uh, why do you think Vince lifted his foot off the gas, so to speak? Pressure from the cable systems? Yeah, that was the reason. And the fact that Turner got involved in it, you, you were talking about Turner Home Entertainment involved in it, and they had a certain uh, name in uh, in the cable systems, and I don't think they wanted to uh, – well, the cable systems, you know, they're like anybody else in wrestling. They're a bunch of whores, <laughs> and they want to make as much money as they can. They feel if the WWE puts its pay-per-views on one weekend and we have it on another – they'll be able to get everybody's money. So uh, it was pressure from the cable systems, no doubt about it. So we've got all the ingredients for a successful show here, Tony. We certainly have a lot of ingredients for a successful show. And uh, as we're going to be talking about it, Conrad, uh, I, uh, I, I have some vivid memories about the Great American Bash. But, Conrad, speaking of ingredients, I want to let you know, and I'm sure you know this because I know a lot of people here uh, in my hometown of Marietta, Georgia, know this, that Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Now, my wife and I, Lois, let me say this. Lois does not like to cook. Lois does not like to clean. 
Lois does not like to get off the chair and get away from her telephone and get away from Facebook, but we are very pumped that we're going to get a, be getting our first package of Blue Apron coming in very, very soon. And it was so easy. We just went to the website and we just clicked on the different varieties of food that we wanted. We didn't want any lamb, but we wanted pork, we wanted seafood, and they are going to be sending that to us. And for less than $10 per person per meal, we are going to have some delicious home-cooked meals because they give us new recipes every week. How about that? It's affordable. There's a great variety. It's super flexible. And that's what I like about it because if you've been listening to our podcast very long, you know that I have commitment issues. Uh, And here, there's no weekly commitment. You only get the deliveries when you want them. And hell, it's so easy. Even Tony Schiavone can do it. Am I right? Yeah. Even Lois Schiavone can do it. <laughs> That's the way you got it. Now, each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. So check out this week's menu. Get your first three meals free of charge with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Tony. Now, this is important. Blueapron.com slash Tony. You love how good it feels, it tastes, to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Aprons. Don't wait. BlueApron.com slash Tony. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Three free meals and free shipping. That can't be better like that. than that. I can't wait. Next time we get together, I'm going to tell you how it all panned out for us, and I know we're very excited here at the Shimani household about it. Yeah, I can't wait uh, for you to cook for Lois. This will be great. Uh, so before we get to the card, let's talk about the Great American Bash in the years prior briefly. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago the stadium shows. Well, in 85, it was a stadium show in Charlotte. In 86, it was a 13-city stadium tour. And in 87, it was three events, two of which are in stadiums. Uh, and now in 88, we're doing a tour including all the major markets, uh, a lot of big cities too, uh, not just Jim Crockett big cities, but big cities, Houston, Los Angeles, Seattle, etc. But rather than trying to do a home video release with highlights or a pay-per-view with highlights from each, we're doing a single live show on pay-per-view. Uh, so the tour still exists, but it essentially becomes known as more of a pay-per-view single event. Uh, do you remember the change being made just because of the financial potential that pay-per-view represented? I mean, at this time, it represents a little bit of a departure from everything's all about the gate and butts and seats, so to speak. And now it's about fucking pay-per-view. Am I right? Yeah, it's about pay-per-view. I, I, pay-per-view, I, realistically, logically, how many can you put into a house show, right? Right. 7,000, 6,000 pay-per-view. You could have hundreds of thousand people at whatever the price point was back then to watch your show. So I think it was it was logical to think that. You can make it just a pay-per-view. You don't have to travel all over the country. Or maybe you could travel all over the country after the pay-per-view. If you had some success out of it, it would help with house shows as well. So the draw of the 88 tour of the Great American Bash was to include a war games at each of the stops. And then when it comes time for the pay-per-view, there's no war games. But they do this Tower of Doom concept. What the hell's the thinking here, Tony? Is it that... If you've seen the house show and you've been to one of these major markets and you've seen the war games, then you wouldn't want to watch it again on pay-per-view. So let's put together this card. That could have been part of the thinking. Let me also say this. I don't think I never did like war games. What? I never did like war games. 
I think we should just wrap up the show now. Let's wrap. Apparently, you liked it, right? What's fucking awesome? Yes, I like it. It's fucking awesome. How do you win war games? I don't know. Okay, you had to give up. Right. You had to give up. To me, the excitement was in the one, two, three pop that you got. Oh, I see. I, I think. And I always said this, as war games bloody as it can be, and that's probably why it stayed away from a pay-per-view, as bloody as it was, you would have somebody give up. And the first war games we ever had, J.J. Dillon gave up. I always thought that you get the big house pop, you get the excitement when you get a one, two, three, and I always thought it was not a, not a, not a knock on Dusty or J.J. any of those guys, but I always thought it was book wrong. I always thought you could have that gigantic two-ring, two-cage thing, but you still ought to have the pin. Or you ought to have somebody thrown out. Just saying, oh, all of a sudden we're we're screaming and we're hyping this big event. And all of a sudden they say, oh, J.J. just said, I quit. Well, fuck. That was a popcorn fart. <laughs> so I, I, I think I, I I was not a fan. of I was a fan of the way the war games looked. Oh, I was a fan awesome. of the way the war games had all the blood and all the all the carnage. But the way the finish was the war games, I didn't like it all. So there. I get it. I can right. co-sign that. I take it. So back. there's the thinking there. I think that all of a sudden, fans are going to see war games, and it's probably going to be too bloody for a pay-per-view. One of the things there. Also ironic that that pay-per-view ends the way it does. We'll get yes, there. Yes, isn't it? Uh, let's talk briefly about Baltimore. This became a bit of a Great American Bash staple moving forward. You guys held a lot of the pay-per-views here. Uh, maybe the most famous was in 90 when Sting beat Flair for the world title for the first time. What was it that made Baltimore so special to Jim Crockett? Well, I think Baltimore was one of those cities that was kind of a stronghold of Turner Broadcasting. Uh, if you'll recall back in the old days, we're talking about before JCP and before uh, Vince McMahon, uh, the, uh, the old world championship wrestling with Gordon Soley doing the announcing, they would always go to places like Baltimore they would go to Columbus, Ohio. They would go to Dayton, Ohio, places that were had a very strong Turner influence in its cable systems. Baltimore became a very strong town for us, a very uh, good town, much like a Jacksonville, Florida, a Savannah, Georgia was for us. Greensboro was for us. It was one of the great towns that we had. Uh, they just had great fans, and we did much better business in Baltimore than we did in Washington, D.C., right down the road. Uh, and not only that, Baltimore's arena was in the Inner Harbor area, right? which was just a great place to be, a, a nice family atmosphere type place, safe place. I mean, I know all cities have their problems with, uh, with crime, but you felt safe and you felt great down in the Inner Harbor area of Baltimore, Little Italy over on the side. And, of course, I know you've heard plenty of stories about Sabatinos. Sure. But we just had great fan response in Baltimore. And Baltimore was on our side. And I think at least they were until the end of this show. Uh, it's worth mentioning. A lot of folks will hear Baltimore and think that's Vince's territory. But it's Not worth really. mentioning, as you just said, that Jim Crockett had drawn well in Baltimore, Philadelphia, Landover, Pittsburgh, and other areas on the East Coast. Uh, and Flair used to famously say that Crockett would still be in business if they'd stayed east of the Mississippi. And obviously, Rick says that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But do you agree in theory that it was the expansion maybe out west that hurt them in the long run more so than just focusing right there on the east coast? Uh, it, 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 uh, Conrad, it wasn't the expansion that hurt them. It was the, the hurry to expand that hurt them. 
I think if you go out, and it's easy to say again, it's easy to be a armchair quarterback, but I think if you go out and you want to expand out west, you take it slowly, and you have a business plan. I don't think we did. Uh, we just went out there. By golly, we got a town. Let's go out there and do it. And I'm not so sure that uh, that we did it. Uh, we should have done a little bit slower, put it that way. I, I, I don't think that you could have stayed in business because of what Vince was doing by being a regional promotion by that time. Yeah. You had to be a national promotion, and that's what, you know, that's what we were. And, uh, but we could have done it without trying to go out so quickly. Before we get to the show itself, uh, let's touch on the state of the business at the time. Uh, it's worth mentioning here that we're just a handful of months away from Crockett selling to Turner. Uh, and the combination of the enormous expense from the UWF purchase, overspending on stuff like the jet, of course, the balloon payments on talent contracts looming at the end of the year, this all eventually leads to it's kind of over. Right. Uh, Tony, what was the mood in the company like in July? Because this show is sold out, so it, it's drawing well. You've you've now got Turner kind of supporting the pay-per-view. Um, but at this point, creatively, has Dusty lost some confidence with the boys or the office by this point? Who's optimistic? Is there anybody in particular you remember being vocal and maybe undermining some of the decisions? Or where does everybody kind of fall on this stuff in July of 88? Well, I think we all were realizing that things weren't going well. I, I think it got to the point to where uh, because of the UWF purchase, uh, because of those airplanes that you talked about, because we were spending so much money, that it got to the point to where I think a lot of people were pointing at Dusty for making these decisions. A lot of people think in the company, and I'm talking boys and front office people, that it was Dusty that wanted to move back to Texas and it was Dusty that convinced Jimmy Crockett to buy the UWF so they could move to Dallas because Dusty and Jimmy did move to Dallas. Right. And everybody else stayed in, in, uh, in North Carolina. You're talking about a family, a Crockett family, that was well-established, well-respected in Charlotte, North Carolina. That was their home. With real roots and other businesses and, you know, for right. generations. Right, generations and roots in, in the Carolinas. So Jimmy left and Dusty went with him, and that really fractured our business. It really it fractured our front office. Now, there was a lot of guys being vocal and undermining the direction, like you said. You know, I mentioned Tully last week. And, yeah. And I, and I know Flair was very vocal in it as well. Whether they had an impact into what was going on, I don't know, because still the boys were based in, in Dallas. Most of the boys, the UWF boys, I've, I know we're, I mean, we're based in Charlotte. Right. The UWF boys were based in, in Dallas. But uh, – the mood in the company in July was very unsettling, and, and I really think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Jimmy and Dusty left. Like, they, they pulled up and they left the company behind. I, I want to read you an article here, or share clips from an article. Uh, this is from the Charlotte Observer, and it's the May 25th, 88 edition. Uh, Tom Sorensen was the staff writer for the paper and the uh, title know was Tom very well. I know Tom very well. Still writes for him. Uh, so the title of the article is Crockett's talk to TBS on selling wrestling interest. And in the article, he quotes that uh, TBS and Crockett are discussing a multi-million dollar sale of at least a substantial portion of the family's wrestling interests. Uh, and they say that uh, 
it could be worth more than $10 million and it would at least include the television production facilities. Uh, they also say that it could include moving the operations to Atlanta and Dallas, ending wrestling shows in smaller towns and dramatically cutting the number of wrestlers employed. Um, they write, of course, that it features stars like Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Sting, etc. cetera. Uh, and he says that uh, Ted Turner's WTBS Superstation in Atlanta um, has several hours of highly profitable uh, programming weekly, and that Jim Crockett, who's the president, said that they had 227 local stations and produced more than 1,000 live shows a year. Uh, and Francis Crockett denied any negotiations. Uh, they list her title at the time as being vice president of marketing. Uh, she says there are rumors that float around all the time. Uh, Crockett and Rhodes, who say are, are, are listed as senior producers, would not comment. Uh, and Crockett, uh, is it's revealed in here that he had uh, moved from Charlotte to Dallas, just as you had said. And uh, somebody from TBS and Public Relations, uh, Mike Oglesby, says, I can confirm discussions about future projects, but declined further comment. So they kind of talk a little bit about the history that they have here uh, in Charlotte. But then they start to talk about laying folks off. Um, The wrestler said the Crockett's are uh, way behind in merchandising and publicity. Their people don't have the experience or know-how Turner's people have. He said the wrestlers have been told that by August or September, the Crockett operation would be completely moved out of its Charlotte headquarters. And the Crockett's once employed more than 100 wrestlers. But in the past year, that number has been reduced to 40 or 50 and we'll cut it further. He said he didn't know why wrestlers were being laid off. Uh, The Crockett's wrestlers would still appear in such cities as Charlotte, Greensboro and Spartanburg. But the shows would be phased out of the smaller towns, he says. Uh, there'll be a great market for somebody to come in. We'll concentrate more on bigger markets. So not all great news in here, but when it comes out, does it kind of freak everybody out or is it almost good news? If you're one of the top guys, like, thank God, somebody's going to keep this thing afloat. How was this received? Was it passed around the locker room? Do you remember this article? I remember the article and I remember us finally saying, at least we know uh, some of the rumors have some validity to them. You know, it, and I, I can even fast forward to when uh, when uh, WCW was being sold to Vince McMahon and, and Eric Bischoff wanted to buy it, and you heard so many things. You know, rumors in the wrestling business backstage can take a life of their own. And when you see something on paper, at least it, it makes you feel pretty good about it, that at least we had a direction. Now, I don't think uh, this – this thing about cutting the more than 100 wrestlers, uh, 40 or 50, I, I, I don't buy that number because I don't, I don't think that uh, we actually knew exactly what would be done. Uh, but, but I do think that it, it made us feel a little bit better. Made me feel better, I can tell you that. So if you're a top guy, you've got to feel good about this. If you're a lower guy, you've got to be thinking – this is not the best news, right? Well, you, you would, yeah, I, I guess so. Let me also respond to the, uh, uh, that one wrestler said the Crockett's are way behind in merchandising and publicity and the people didn't have the experience or the Turner know-how right and wrong Crockett people. And I was one of them did not have 
the experience or the know-how of merchandising and publicity. Neither but I Turner. can tell you right now, the Turner people didn't either. Right. We didn't have the experience or the publicity and merchandising as the WWF had. And that was one of our uh, one of our weaknesses, one of our main weaknesses right there. Nor do we have the staff. Um, was, was the fear that Vince would wind up taking control and then that would put a lot of guys out of business? And this is viewed as... You know, Ted Turner taking over is much more favorable than Vince taking over. Is no question. Everybody yeah. thinks, you know, we're going to be possibly be owned now by a millionaire who has been so successful with Turner Broadcasting and with uh, CNN. So there you go. There um, you go, motherfuckers. I like we it. all felt good at that time. I like it. And we felt pretty lousy during most of that year. Uh, a lot of this card was set up on Clash of the Champions 2, Miami Mayhem. Uh, Lyle Alzado was on that Clash, and he's there to promote his new sitcom, Learning the Ropes, for Turner. Uh, what did you think of Learning the Ropes? Didn't watch it. Nobody else did either. Yeah, I didn't give a fuck about it. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, also, on well, Lyle Alzado was a pretty good guy. He came out and did some interviews with us. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like putting wrestling... In the hands of Hollywood writers, you know, fuck that. I had no interest in it. Um, Did you watch it? No, no, nobody, nobody watched this. Then why'd you ask me this dumbass question? What did you think of learning the ropes? Because I knew you'd get fired up and have a funny reaction. <laughs> okay, I wasn't trying to ask no. to have a legitimate conversation about it. I knew you'd get fired up, and that's what I was okay. looking for. So what did you think of Learning the Ropes, Tony? Oh, I watch it. Really? You were the only dumb motherfucker that watched it. Oh, really? Well, I happen to like it. Yeah, I knew I knew you were not saying that. Okay. Uh, also on this clash is the contract signing for what Jim Crockett Jr. called the most important championship match I've ever signed, which is, of course, Lex Luger and Ric Flair. Uh, the horsemen are there, uh, and uh, Wyndham is, of course, there now, having turned on Lex Luger since our Clash of the Champions episode. Mm-hmm. And they're on a yacht called the Blackhawk, and they've got everybody there. Uh, Jim Crockett, Lex, some other folks. The big gold belt is uh, prominently displayed, and Flair warns that Luger has to make it to July 10th in order to get this title shot. Lots of questions here, Tony. Whose yeah. yacht is this? Why do you do it there? Who liked the idea? Any memories of shooting this in particular? Yes, the yacht was owned by Bruce MacArthur, who was a friend of the Nature Boy Ric Flair's. They went to school together, uh, and uh, he, his family was part owner of the Chicago Blackhawks. There you go. There he goes. That's what it was called, the Blackhawks. He also was known because he ran around with us a lot. He was known as a general because his last name was MacArthur. So it was his yacht. It was down at Boca Raton. Uh what stands out about shooting that that day is two things for me. How how much money is down in Boca? That's number one, and how long we were on that fucking boat. I mean, we just took. I mean, hey, listen. I, I things time things take time to shoot. I know, but it seemed like it took us a lot longer to shoot things, and we were on there seemingly all freaking day. And when I go back and think about that, you know what I think about, uh, Conrad? What's that? What the fuck was I doing there? With the exception, I guess, was I the host of it that day? Was I? Yeah, I mean, right afterwards, right. Uh, they threw it to you in your phenomenal mustache. 
uh, and you wrapped it up as the horseman kind of high fived in the background. Who were yeah. the, the other folks in the shot? There was a lady seated and two guys standing behind Lex. It, it was just some of Bruce's friends. That that was his boat, and that was some of his socialite friends. Uh, how much partying was going on on that boat that night or after the clash? I mean, after this pay per view. I, I, I don't know. I, I went my own way. I stayed away from that bullshit. Not all the time. <laughs> I've heard you don't some believe stories. Me, do you? I've heard some stories. Oh, you have, huh? Uh, after the horsemen, uh, you know, kind of wrap up this review segment from earlier in the day, we see their limo arrive in real time, and they're all dressed to the nines. This is Clash of the Champion 2 here. Uh, and later, of course... Uh, Lex Luger shows up in a different colored limo and he gets out and he's wearing all white. So the horsemen jump him. And if you've been watching wrestling very long, you know, if the black guys are, if, if the, the bad guys are wearing black and the, and the baby face is wearing all white, somebody's going to bleed. Is that fair yes. to say? Yes. Uh, we love blood. Red yes, we green. do. Uh, Luger wrote in his book that he had never been asked to get color before. So they kind of get a plan B here and they have JJ taped a blade to his own finger. Uh, and then they told Lex to take four aspirin, do a couple shots of Jack Daniels in the limo, and that would thin out his blood. Um, and he says during the fracas, one of the guys actually slammed his head in the trunk for real. And, uh, this busted him open hard way, but JJ still zipped him, uh, with the razor uh, anyway, the blood starts to get on his white clothes, and he says that it actually was worse uh, after the filming, uh, and it was drenching his white shirt and even into his shoes, and he was traipsing around the hotel lobby with blood even in his shoes. Uh, anything stand out to you about shooting this segment in particular or Luger being apprehensive about blading, uh, and how common was it for someone else to be doing it at this time as far as you know? It was very kind. That's that's the way it was done in the business. I uh, when you did your first blade job, normally someone else did it for you. There you go. Because the thought was you would chicken out, right? So you would have someone else do it. Uh, I remember Lex being very very nervous about doing this, uh, and very nervous about bleeding. Uh, and I have a feeling that if he says someone threw him into the uh, trunk of the limo and bust him open for real. That was just another way of them uh, making sure it got done, making sure it got done. But it was also kind of a way of, uh, I don't know, initiation, if you will. Yeah. Into big time wrestling, into the world of pro wrestling. You're going to be a big star now. Here you go, buddy. And we're going to make sure you bleed. And here's part of your initiation. We're going to cut you and we're going to get you the hard way as well. I loved I loved all that blood, man. I thought it was a really fun segment, um, even though it was kind of weird to shoot this uh, on the boat, the the signing, but the signing and then the attack, uh, I feel like, really set up this pay-per-view nicely on Clash 2. And Meltzer writes that TBS did a great job hyping the event in the weeks prior to the show. He wrote, the Sunday bit on TBS acting like it was a telethon and showing all those numbers of cable companies nationwide was such an ingenious idea that it couldn't have come from the Crockett's. Unfortunately for the Crockett's, the Braves baseball game went 13 innings and 45 minutes of their last minute hype was preempted. Tony, do you remember there being a greater influence uh, for, you know, focusing on selling the pay-per-view here than there was for the bunkhouse stampede? Yes, I do. And you credit all of that to Turner? 
Yes, I do. Turner Home Entertainment, Steve Chamberlain. I have a feeling that the uh, the idea of showing the number of cable companies nationwide and acting like it was a telethon would all be credited to Steve Chamberlain. Uh, do you remember shooting those segments? And do you remember anybody being really pissed off that the Braves were going long, thinking it was fucking with the sales? I don't think I was a part of those segments at all. I don't. I wasn't around that. Let's get to the show. Uh, Meltzer, all right, let's go. Meltzer wrote, the Baltimore Bash was a good show in my book, but not a great show. Of the six big shows Crockett has presented of late, Starcade, Clash 1, Clash 2, Bunkhouse, and the Crockett Cup, along with this one, I'd rate this third behind the Clash and the Crockett Cup second night as an overall card. It's too early to tell how much they may have helped or hurt their cause with this show. Tony, overall, what would you think of this card? Do you agree with where Dave has it ranked behind the first Clash and Crockett Cup night two? Or would you bump Great American Bash a little higher? I would bump Great American Bash higher than the Crockett Cup. Uh, I like the card a lot. I, I thought maybe with a two-and-a-half-hour show, I thought maybe we could have used one more match. Yeah. Because I think some of the pacing of the matches were a little bit long. Yeah. Uh, for a two-and-a-half-hour show. show. Other than dusty. that, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and one of the reasons I think it was one of our better shows is the reaction of the fans in, in Baltimore. Yeah. The reaction was tremendous of the fans in Baltimore. Really genuine heat. Uh, so I would put it above a, uh, a Crockett Cup. Uh, I don't think it was as good as our first Clash of the Champions, uh, but I agree it's uh, it was a pretty darn good card. Uh, Meltzer wrote, the heat from the live crowd, which was a, a legit sellout of 14,000 fans and a $208,000 gate, was exceptional. The card did peak too soon. It seemed the most heat was the first match due mainly to Sting. Anyone watching the show with even casual attentiveness could see that Sting is the hottest act in the promotion but for some reason, he's not getting pushed as the hottest act. Tony, watching this back in hindsight, do you think Sting was mismanaged here? No question. You and I talked about this before we even started this podcast. Yeah. Sting put the Scorpion Death Lock on Ric Flair and time ran out. And Sting put the Scorpion Death Lock on in this match. And what happened? Time ran out. Time ran out. It was back-to-back, same type of, of finishes. That did nothing for Sting. I, I, nothing for him at all. In, in hindsight, maybe Sting probably should have been pushed higher than Luger. Yeah. I, th- I thought Sting was a better worker than Luger was. Uh, we'll debate that, I'm sure, here in a minute. Um, it's worth mentioning, though. We're talking about things are bad, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should point out that even though you know the perception may be that things are really bad, the reality is... They outdrew the WWF here two weeks apart by a ratio of two to one. So they're sold out as you double what the WWF did two weeks prior. When the WWF came to town, by the way, they used their WrestleMania main event. So it's not like they weren't trying to bring out all the big guns. Uh, and, and, and you guys still dominated. They did have one dark match before the camera started rolling here for Great American Bash. And it was Dick Murdoch and Rick Steiner beating Tim Horner and Kendall Windham. Uh, anything you want to mention about uh, that match, your memories of it, or any of these guys in particular? I'd, I'd like to mention a, a couple of things. I, I thought Tim Horner was one of the most underrated workers of of that time. Uh, Kendall was was not as good as Barry, but Kendall was a good kid, worked hard. Uh, Rick Steiner, I think we all know what he became and how good a performer he became, but 
to me, Dick Murdoch was one of the great performers of all time. And I'm not going to say one of the great workers of all time, but one of the great performers. He had a great talk. His uh, cowboy gimmick was pretty good. Uh, he was over big time as a heel and a babyface in the Crockett promotions uh, back in the uh, back in the 70s before that. So I had a lot of uh, I, I, I was a big Dick Murdoch fan. And I'd also seen him do some very, very funny Three Stooges type bumps in the ring. So I enjoyed whatever he did. So I, I liked him a lot. Now, let me say something about Rick Steiner, if I can say it here. Rick Steiner, I don't know if you know, has gone on to become a member of the Cherokee County School Board in I, Cherokee County, Georgia. Rick Steiner, the dog-faced gremlin who used to bark for a living, is now a member of a school board. And uh, he runs Let a very, that one sink in, okay? And he runs a business. He's a realtor. Yes, he does. Does well. Very successful. I saw him at the NWA, uh, the NWA Fan Fest, and I said, you're on the Cherokee County School Board. Man, I'm glad my kids don't go to that county. <laughs> and he laughed. But in reality now, uh, my grandkids go to school in Cherokee County. <laughs> so there. Uh, it's worth mentioning, if you throw that in your Google machine, uh, you will see uh, what looks like Rick Steiner holding up a sign, uh, re-elect Rick Steiner. Cherokee County School Board, his own little uh, yard sign that you see, you know, for any sort of political election. It's interesting to to There was see a big that. stink about that, you know, him not using his real last name. Or his real first name. Or his real first name, <laughs> Rob Ricksteiner. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a bizarre situation. It's worth a Google though. First up, let's do it. Uh, first match on the card, maybe the greatest tag team of the era, at least for my for my money. Tully uh, Blanchard and Arn Anderson uh, retain their tag titles. We just talked about kind of the scurry finish here uh, with Sting and Nikita. Uh, Meltzer wrote about the heels working on Nikita's arm. He says, if you watch the tape, you'll find one thing funny. Arn was working over the injured left arm for a while. And then Tully comes in and works over the injured right arm. Mm. Um, Sting eventually gets the hot tag, has the Scorpion death lock on Tully, exactly as you described. There's about 20 seconds uh, till the end of the match. Then the bell rings and Meltzer writes, you know what would be a tremendous finish is if just once they would work a match exactly like this and call 10 seconds left and then have the guy actually submit with one or two seconds left. Whoops, sorry for that hallucination. I forgot completely that wrestlers don't submit nowadays. I was having flashbacks to my childhood. Uh, Tony, given the frequency where we saw this finish, the dusty finish of sorts, was this a fair criticism in July of 88? I think it was a fair criticism. I think it was a smart-ass way to to write it. Of course. He's very complimentary of the match, though. He says, uh, overall, this match told a story better than any other on the card. Nikita was terrible until he hurt his arm, but he didn't do a bad job of not moving while uh, <laughs> while Arn armbarred him. Uh, the other three were about what you would expect from them on a big show, which is darn good. Three and a half stars. What did you think of the match? Thought it was great again, uh, with the exception of the Scorpion Deathlock and uh, Nikita Koloff uh, being a babyface. What was awesome to me though is the heat you talked about. Because, man, the reaction from this crowd for literally everything in this first match just can't yeah. be compared. You're uh, right. And if you're not really sold on Arn Anderson being one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, just go watch this match. 
he was able to get so much out of Nikita and he made everything look so believable. Uh, there's just spots in the corner where he looks like he's outsmarted Nikita, his facials, and, and that sets up Nikita to have a huge reaction from the crowd. It's the little subtleties that made Arn Anderson great. And uh, I hadn't watched an Arn match in a little while. I sat down and watched this and my daughter, who's a huge wrestling fan, I made her come watch it. And even she was like, wow, I've never seen anybody do that before. Arn was an innovator, man. And this match really, really uh, reminded me of that. It always took great heels to be able to call the match. You know, in the old days, heels always called the matches. Uh, right. But, and I know that changed a little bit, but it always took great heels to be able to call matches. And not only that, I, I'm, I'm telling you this, and, and I'm sincere about this. Arn Anderson's a good friend. And if you see a great match in the WWE right now, more than likely Arn Anderson set it up. Yeah, you uh, you corresponded with Arn recently. You were really right. impressed with a pay-per-view match at the Royal Rumble with right. uh, John Cena and AJ Styles. And right. when we were trading text messages, you said, I'd bet a dollar that Arn Anderson was the agent on this match. Yeah. And he was. And he was. Yeah. Yeah. Knew how to make a baby face look good and just knew the psychology of what was the psychology of the business back then which obviously has changed a great deal here in 2017. Uh, it's worth mentioning that uh, Dave Milliken, a friend of the show, has one of these original blue tag team titles here that Sting and Nikita were screwed out of on this show. Uh, he is on Twitter if you'd like to see those belts uh, present day today. All right. Well, very cool. And if you'd like to be a champion, I can guarantee you won't be screwed over by leatherbydan.com. No dusty finishes with our friend Leather by Dan. Just go to leatherbydan.com and you'll see lots of belts that are available now. But maybe the most fun thing about leatherbydan.com is that you can create your very own custom belt for only $999. Let me say this. If we're coming around baseball time and there's a lot of guys who get together. My oldest son is one of them. Get together with their friends and they have fantasy baseball leagues. This would be perfect to get a belt by leatherbydan.com to give to your champion of your fantasy baseball league. Don't you think that'd be a great idea? I love that idea. Great idea. Also, I have seen in some baseball leagues, especially in the International League last year, the winner of the uh, home run derby before the AAA All-Star game, instead of getting a trophy, got a championship belt. So if you're running a baseball league, if you're running a fantasy league, this would be the perfect place to go to to crown your champion for less than one thousand dollars you can get a custom three plate nickel championship belt to your exact specifications over at leatherbydan.com dan offers free shipping a custom belt in as little as 10 count them 10 weeks even takes payment plans if you enjoy the show we hope you do please support our sponsors and dan was our very first sponsor check out leatherbydan.com and be sure to check out our whw logo for this special offer that's leatherbydan.com but you know why you should get a belt from leatherbydan.com Conrad? Why, why is that tony because dan is the fucking man i like it i like it i like it uh, more gold on the line in our next match. It's the Midnight Express, and they're reclaiming the U.S. tag titles, beating the Fantastics with Jim Cornette in a straight jacket, and he's hoisted in a shark cage above the ring. Uh, before the match, man, Cornette was awesome here. He did an awesome bit putting on a show to put on the straight jacket. Just tremendously funny stuff. 
Then he begs to not get in the shark cage, offering bribes to the referee, and then freaks out. It's hilarious as they lift him off the ground. Um, how long have shark cages been a thing in Jim Crockett promotions by this point? Because it feels like it's a staple of Southern wrestling. Yeah, it's been there a long time. Long time. If you'll recall when Dusty had his gorilla, his gorilla was in that little cage. Yep. Uh, that cage had been used for managers way, way, way before we started going on TBS. So, yeah, it's been a stable Southern wrestling for a long time. And, you know, you're right about Cornette. <laughs> I, I sent him an email. He has yet to respond to it about how entertaining he was. And I really think the uh, I have to give uh, the, uh, the crew a, a, a pat on the back for being able to close in on Jim Cornette and all the talk that he did with the referee and all the talk that he did hugging Bobby and, and Stan and uh, all the crying that he did and all the bribes he was offering, that was good TV. It was great. That, that was great, entertaining TV, and it's one of the things that made Cornette the man that he was. Uh, and him, I think, I really think that him, when the cage was lifted and he kind of sat down on the, uh, and didn't stand up, and he sat down on the floor of the cage, I think he legitimately was scared to death up there. Well, it's kind of hilarious too because think about all the stuff, all all the levels you've got. Okay, we're going to take him away from ringside. Got it. Now we're going to lift him up in the air. Okay, we're going to put him in a cage. Okay, in a straitjacket. It's like it starts to become over. He's got to be Houdini. Uh, Meltzer, right. Meltzer wrote, even though it's uh, been done uh, a bit that's been done a million times, Cornette deserved an Emmy Award for his performance here. As good as Dangerously is, and he's great, he's not even in the league with Cornette as an overall performer. Not even Jimmy Hart in Memphis was this good. I agree with that. H- hard agree to with be. all of that. This is, this is maybe the best Cornette we'll ever see. Yeah. Um, at the end of the match here, Tommy Rogers uh, is doubled up on, and then eventually uh, Bobby's attempt for the rocket launcher misfires when Rogers stuck his knees up. Uh, so Fulton tags in, and he's doing a Mexican-style cross-block headbutt-type move. Uh, when the ref takes a bump, Bobby Eaton gets posted and is on the verge of defeat when Stan Lane gives him a chain, which he used to knock out Fulton with. And then in a little hilarious twist on the ending, he put the chain in Fulton's trunks, and the ref counted the fall. Uh, it was an awesome match, and Meltzer says it was the best match on the card and gave it four stars after 16 minutes and 23 seconds. Tony, we just covered this match uh, at Clash 1, and it feels like a broken record here, but how fucking great are the Midnights and the Fantastics? Uh, Two of the greatest tag teams of all time, at least in WCW. Uh, Again, it goes back to this. You've got to have four great performers, but you also got to have somebody that can call a match and heels who know how to call a match. And and I think... uh, not to to slay any of these guys, but I think uh, that uh, Bobby Eaton was the unsung hero in a lot of this stuff. Oh, he was for such sure. a fantastic worker, and uh, uh, a pat on the back to him. Jim Cornette wrote in his book that the gate that was reported to the boys here was two hundred and six thousand, with about thirteen thousand fans in attendance. Uh, and he wrote that he knew the Midnight Express was uh, in trouble in paradise when their payoffs were only $1,000. Wow. Uh, that was the lowest ever for a major show or pay-per-view. So it kind of is a little bit of insight into the business. 
Uh, yeah. By comparison, uh, they got $5,000 each for an $80,000 house and limited pay-per-view coverage for the bunkhouse pay-per-view. And uh, they worked singles on that show. And Stan's match even got cut, but they still got five grand. So at the next pay-per-view here now at the bash, only a thousand dollars. Uh, also worth mentioning Starcade 87, their first pay-per-view, uh, Jim writes that they got $10,765 and that house was only $180,000. So now a bigger house, uh, six months later, one tenth of the payoff. Yeah. Was that common? You think, or were they in real cost cutting measure at this point? Yeah, they were. There's no question. And they were in real cost-cutting measures because they, had, uh, because of the Dallas buy, because they extended out west too quickly, and because their overhead was too much. So they had to cut it back. How great was uh, Tommy Young here? We haven't talked about him enough on the show, I don't think. Tommy Young was the best referee that I'd ever seen. And this is – we've got some good ones. I know Charles Robinson's a great one. Uh, Pee Wee was a great one. May he rest in peace. We talked about Nick Patrick. But Tommy Young was the best referee ever. The way he would slide in, the way he would make those counts, the way he would react, how he was perfect. The timing was perfect with when a, when a heel would do something that he would turn perfectly the time the heel would either you know drop it, the, the ropes, like Flair holding the ropes on the yeah. figure four. And he turns to Luger and says, you giving up? You giving up? And Flair would be on the ropes, people would be screaming. He would turn perfectly the time Flair would drop the ropes and says, He's not giving up. He was Tommy Young. And, of course, you know, his career ended early. Yeah. Prematurely. Uh, was the best referee ever. And I knew that even before I got in the business. I don't think there will ever be another referee like him. And there have been some great ones. Uh, after the match, the Fantastics get uh, a belt and whip Cornette ten times. Is there anything more Southern wrestling than whipping somebody with a belt, Tony? No, I don't think so. Unless you go through Tupelo's uh, concession stand and beat the <laughs> shit out of people that way. <laughs> but you're right. Southern wrestling, whipping somebody with a belt, probably couldn't get it done today. They don't do that in the WWE, do they? No, but y- you can see it at, at indie shows all across the South. Oh, yeah. And they even have uh, fans now uh, whipping people with belts. So it's like a fan lumberjack. So if a wrestler gets thrown out, the fans wear them out with a belt. It's a crazy deal. Uh, next up, here's what everybody's here for. The triple tower of doom. It lasted just under 20 minutes. Meltzer wrote, truthfully, the wrestlers deserve credit because all seem to be working hard, trying to make the gimmick work. The fans at ringside couldn't see most of the match. The fans at home were beset with problems because the camera work was distracting and it was a hard event to cover. Nobody was clear on what the rules were. Tony, what were the rules for this match? Do you remember? Yeah, the rules were for the match was the first team to escape would win, right? Uh, That's what I remember. I think the concept was you had to start up top and then work your way down. Work your way down and escape to the bottom. And And that was the concept of it. What would you think of it? Well, I thought it was a gigantic clusterfuck. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I watched this damn thing, and I watched it again. Uh, And... After I watched it a second time, I made a phone call. Actually, I sent a text to my good friend, Kevin Sullivan, (laughs) who turned around and called me. Uh, And Kevin has a very successful podcast here. I know on MLW radio, I'm going to get to see Kevin at 
at uh, at WrestleCon. And I said, Kevin, <laughs> what do you remember about this clusterfuck? He said, I remember Tommy Young was shitting his pants, climbing up that ladder at the top and just got down on his knees and was so scared he didn't want to move. And uh, I said, do you realize that the, the trap door was fucked up? And he said, yeah, it was fucked up. We had to pull it open ourselves because the way the trap door was supposed to be designed, Tommy Young was supposed to crank it and it would open. But if you look back at it, if Tommy Young cranked it, it would close. Right. So they had to open it up themselves. It was one of those things that if you take a look at the Tower of Doom, you go, wow. But you can tell that the guys were unprepared to go through it and we were unprepared to shoot it. And that's why I consider it kind of a clusterfuck. In theory, it was something unique, right? No, it's very imposing looking. And I right, get exactly. the, There's the word. Thank you. Thank you, Conrad. The drawing. There's the word. The blueprint. Imposing. It looked it looked menacing, but. Yeah. Oh, menacing. Hold on. Let me write down this shit here. Are you an English teacher? No, sir. I'm a redneck from Alabama. Well, I know that, but they're redneck teachers. Who made the cage? Do you remember? Yeah, that was made by Klondike Bill. Tell us about Klondike Bill. Uh, uh, <laughs> Real stories about Klondike Bill? Whatever you got. Okay. Uh, now I'm not going to say it to sully up the memory of the uh, of a great man. Uh, I don't know shit about Klondike Bill. Is this is was this the the prop guy for you guys? He was the magician he was who the made ring it guy. all happen. Okay. Uh, Klondike could do anything. Could absolutely do anything, and. Uh, he was, uh, I set up rings with him for a couple of years or for one year, let's say while I was doing baseball, I would set up rings with Klondike and uh, I got to know him very well. Everybody who knew Klondike Bill absolutely loved him. Absolutely loved him. He was a, an icon in our business. Trained by Stu Hart. I uh, went through the dungeon in Calgary Mm-hmm. Uh, born back in 31, passed away in 2000. Yeah, while while we were in uh, while we were in um, Australia, uh, hired uh, during the 70s by Jim Crockett to build guardrails and rings for Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling, right. and then was even uh, an agent for World Championship Wrestling. Yeah. So there you go. Um, yeah. But his name, I mean his. His claim to fame was not really what he did in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. He got, I, I don't know if I could say this word, but I'm going to say it. Okay. Do you mind? Go ahead. Klondike got more pussy than anybody else. How? I have no idea. I don't, I, because I don't think he discriminated. Oh, I say, yeah. Uh, regardless, the, the, regardless of how they looked or what size or whatever. Yeah. There's a phrase, um, uh, in the South. He don't call nothing. <laughs> That's it. So he didn't call anything. Uh, yeah. So there you and go. He would tell. He would tell us some great stories. All some right. great stories. <laughs> See, this is what people want to hear. Con- Should I tell a story? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. All right. He was saying one time he had this girl at. <laughs> God bless. This is the shit I'm right gonna, here. Somebody goes strike my ass dead. Some lightning is going to come down here tonight and strike my ass dead. Anyway. 
Klondike said, he said that one time he had this girl, he said she was just crazy and she couldn't, I couldn't satisfy her. Nothing I would do to satisfy her. And she was like crazy. He said, so I went to the refrigerator and I got out this Polish kibasi. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no. And I took it and I ran it underneath the, uh, the hot water and I got it all limbered up and everything. And he said, and I would, I went at her with that Polish kibasi back and forth and she still she still didn't get enough. And finally, we just both fell asleep. I said, well, what would you do the next morning? He said, well, I cut up the Polish kibbutz and we served it with eggs. <laughs> that was Klondike Bill. Oh, my God. That was Klondike Bill. He had all these great stories. I hate that I never got to meet this guy. Oh, man. Oh, and I well, – and a, a couple of things I hate uh, that – in wrestling was that I missed his funeral because I was, or because we were in, uh, for like three weeks in Australia. I hate, I missed that. I hate, I missed the funeral of Lord Alfred Hayes. Uh, one of the great men. And he's really one of the men that started me in the business. Because like I said, I, I did set up rings with him. He built rings yeah. as you just mentioned. I set up with rings with him many places and got to hear his stories. <laughs> he was the best. He was the absolute best. He, and, and uh, there was, uh, uh, another one who worked with us at ringside, George Tuton Harris. Okay. I've heard that name. Okay. As a matter of fact, uh, if you go back in this show, you'll see George Tuton Harris there at ringside when they were helping to structure this big triple tower of doom and George Tuton Harris and Klondike bill work, both worked for the Crockett's. They both worked at the ballpark. They were both on the grounds crew and they didn't get along at all. And their the arguments they had were legendary. So uh, a lot of great memories back then. Talking I hope you enjoy your next Polish kibasa. Yeah, I feel like there's a shirt coming out of this. Uh, <laughs> when did Don't you dare <laughs> put Klondike Bill's name on it. It'll just be a sausage with, a, with <laughs> eggs. It's uh, our own sausage party. Uh, okay, there we go. Uh, okay. when, when did you guys get the cage? Do you get it that same day? Uh I, I don't have an answer for that. Did they do like a walkthrough before the show? Or does the first time these guys, you know, climb the thing and get in is live on pay-per-view? Well, I think it's pretty apparent that watching them walk out and look up there, it was that was the first time they walked through it. How crazy is that in hindsight? That oh, never... it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. They walk but through. But again, it goes back to, to, you know, a lot of wrestling was improvisation. Uh, and some of the great wrestlers could go in the ring and Work a great match without even talking to each other. They knew what the finish was. But this is different. I mean, what if you climb know, the thing but, on but paper? But still, it goes back to that that old the old mindset. I understand that. Hypothetically, what what would you guys have done if they got up there and the fucking thing didn't support and somebody just fell? <laughs> what could we have done but screamed our heads off? Right? He's falling, son of a bitch. I He's mean, falling. What do, you, what do you want me to say here? Well, you know, we all saw Mick Foley. I would have said, that was the greatest triple cage <laughs> dunk of a team in the history of wrestling, and somebody's butt just got put on the mat. How does that sound? There you go. All right. Uh, You're pulling the shit out of me. You know that, don't you? I'm just saying, this was scary. You know, I'm scared yeah, of heights. it was scary. It absolutely was and scary. To see this and I thing... remember thinking, when the first two guys got in there, that, boy, shouldn't there be like a a floor to these cages. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. Cause it was just a cage. It was just a chain link cage as, as a floor. And now you've got all this massive humanity walking around chain link 
it's got to give eventually. I mean, holy shit. We're lucky. No one was really seriously injured here. Yeah. Uh, of course, all the focus on this match was around Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Garvin and precious and the rest of the guys are kind of bit players in that storyline. But for right. the record, there's big name dudes in this. You've got the road warriors. You've got Dr. Death, uh, Jimmy and Ron Garvin. And then on the heel team, you've got Rotundo, the Russian assassin, Sullivan, Koloff, and Perez. Uh, it comes down to Jimmy and Sullivan and Precious, of course, uh, and they're unlocked. And now, um, you know, Sullivan kind of chases Precious around. Yeah. And, and then eventually he gets a rope and starts choking Precious. Yeah. And this is when Jimmy and Hawk jump down the cage and... Uh, I don't really understand how this works, but Hawk then makes the save, but it should have been Garvin, should it not? Yes, it should have been Garvin making the save. I don't think there's any question. A couple of things I remember about that, and as watching, uh, I didn't remember it necessarily at that time because I was kind of involved in all the excitement of it, but after going back and looking at it, man, you couldn't do that that angle today could you no a man with choking with, a woman uh, with sullivan choking her no no not at all just shows you how much society's changed and another thing i thought of and i i, I want to say this i don't want to say this being funny i want to say this being legit and i thought about this that night too because i remember thinking about this uh patty wonderful lady had a great mom and her and jimmy a great couple i don't know how she stayed in her top that night yeah it was, uh, that was amazing to me. Cause I remember when she walked out thinking, Oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? Because, you know, she had a very revealing top on, uh, but, uh, I don't know how she stayed in her top and I don't know how we got away with that. I guess we got away with it because it was 1988. Uh, the match gets two and three quarter stars. How many stars do you give her top? Uh, I give her four stars. Four stars. Now, if it, was, De- it was it was spectacular. It was almost a Deborah McMichael level. See, I know you're trying to drag me down the gutter, and I ain't going to go there. Even though I was in Tuscaloosa last week, was that the only thing you were in? <laughs> yes, it was. Okay. I was there to see a basketball game. Well, did you see any balls? Uh, do, you, <laughs> do you know that Deborah's going to be at Wrestle WrestleCon also? Is she going to be? At, is she going to be in your booth? Uh, no. You're going to be in hers. <laughs> See, what? I'm a happily married man. Is Lois going to WrestleCon? <laughs> no. Roll Tide. <laughs> uh, match number four on the show. Barry Wyndham retains his U.S. title, uh, <laughs> pinning Dusty Rhodes in nearly Where 16 minutes. Okay. Uh, the crowd was into this match less than any other match, wrote Dave Meltzer. Uh, Dusty went for the big elbow, and Wyndham uh, was pinned. But there's no ref to do the count, of course. So Ron Garvin comes in and hits Dusty with the hands of stone punch. And at least on TV, it seemed like everyone cheered. But then the ref came to Wyndham put Dusty in the claw and got the three count. The match itself was bad, but Wyndham took a few incredible bumps and the ending seemed to surprise everyone on TV. They showed a dressing room bit where JJ and Gary Hart gave Garvin what appeared to be a suitcase full of money uh, star and a quarter. That is Meltzer's recap of the match. What did you think of this match? The, a lot of folks were critical of Dusty Rhodes' work here, thinking that he was lazy and unmotivated. 
Meanwhile, everybody seems to think Barry Windham was at the top of his game in '88. What say What say you, Tony? Well, I say that uh, that Dusty's work was okay here. I don't think he was lazy and unmotivated. I mean, he was the head booker. He's the one that came up with the finish, and he was the one doing the job basically. I think Dusty took a lot of heat for a lot of things, but I don't think it was that bad. I think uh, if you watch the match, I think he did a pretty good job of trying to come back from that claw hold. I think one thing that happened during this match, and and uh, and this is uh, 2020 hindsight, I really liked working with Jim Ross, and uh, I, I think Jim and I had really good chemistry that night, and uh, I think we dropped the ball on this by not talking more about Barry Windham being the son of Blackjack Mulligan and using that claw hold, which yeah. is Blackjack's forte. Let me just ask this. How fucking dumb is the claw hold? I don't know. Ask, go ask the Von Erics. I fuck. I don't know. I'm not saying that other people didn't do it. I'm just saying right. if wrestling was a shoot, right? Is the fucking claw hold not the dumbest thing ever? I, I don't know. Probably a bunch of slapdicks like you cheered when someone put it on at one time, didn't they? No, I, I wasn't watching this shit. Okay. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, I agree that it it would seem like to me that in in a perfect world that with the sweat and everything, the perspiration that you could just walk out of a claw hold, right? But man, like JR said, he can palm a basketball, you know, JR was really good at those, uh, those analogies and things like that to make you feel that, you know, the claw hold was, was tremendous. Why not just punch him in the dick? (laughs) Well, that's illegal. Well, you're out of the claw hold. If I could have right. my head busted like a grape or I could just punch a dude in the dick, I'm going dick punch. Well, I know, but if you got the claw hold on, now your equilibrium is off and you don't know where you are, so you may be swinging at his dick and hit the dick of the referee. <laughs> right? Or you may hit your own dick. <laughs> this is what people want to hear. We've t- <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it is. <laughs> hey, um... What's Deborah McMichael think about Kilbasa? Where's she on that? Uh, you do know I do this show at my home, don't you? Yeah, I also know that Lois is is asleep. She's not doing. Well, to yeah, be up she yet. she she drinks about a bottle of tequila before four p.m. and passes out about six. Uh, what do you think of the finish here with Ron Garvin? Uh, I was confused, but I didn't know it was going going down. I liked Ronnie Garvin. I always thought Ronnie Garvin would have been a good healer, babyface, anything that he would have done. I thought the execution of uh, Ronnie Garvin getting the payoff in the back was piss poorly done. Uh, That should have been something that was pre-taped and then inserted later. Right. But if you'll recall, Jim Ross pitched to it, and it wasn't there. And we kind of pitched to it again, and we pitched to Bob Cottle. And now Bob Cottle is talking about what happened, and Bob's not even seeing what's going on. Right. It was, uh, the execution of it was kind of shitty, but, uh, other than that, it was okay. Let's you know, why to... not start another angle? No, I like it. I mean, I, yeah. I think it surprised everybody. It freshened yeah. up Garvin who kind of hadn't done anything in a few months. I dug it. I thought it was cool. Yeah. I'm with you too. Uh, Rick Flair, here he is in our main event. Uh, he retains the NWA world title after 23 minutes and 13 seconds. Why? Well, because the Maryland State Athletic Commission stopped the match due to Lex Luger's bleeding. Uh, And this was probably better than a lot of people had any business expecting it to be. 
but still not very good when you consider the classics that we've all kind of seen Rick have over his career. Uh, the finish saw JJ post Luger who takes a comical bump there, uh, and then bleeds, uh, a few moments later, Luger has flare up in the human torture rack when the commission stops the match, even though Luger was actually bleeding very little, like comically right. very little. Uh, so the crowd thinks the title has changed hands here and several of the face wrestlers, Sting, Nikita, Dr. Death run to the ring for the celebration. And then the official announcement is made. Uh, two and a half stars, according to Meltzer. Uh, what'd you think of the match? What'd you think of I the thought, finish? Uh, again, Ric Flair leads the match, calls the match, and Luger wasn't the greatest worker in the world, wasn't even close to the greatest worker in the world, but had the great look, and I thought Flair did a hell of a job with that match, of walking him through it. Uh, I thought there were some very good spots. Again, I thought Tommy Young was tremendous in the match. I agree uh, that Luger didn't bleed enough, but and, and I know that that was a that was a point of contention with some of the boys in the back later that Luger didn't bleed enough. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. Was was there significant heat on Lex for not bleeding more? Was it- I don't know if significant uh, heat, but there was heat for him not bleeding more of the match, and he just you know Lex didn't know how to do it. So yeah, let's talk about that. Do you think it's he didn't know how to do it, or he was he was a prima donna and didn't want to do it and wanted to do the bare minimum. Mm. Wow. I just think he didn't know how to do it, put it that way. I'm not saying was he. I mean, was the perception that he was. Yes, the perception that he was. Yeah. I agree with that. So uh, who would have been vocal kind of being anti-Luger in that regard? Oh, I'm sure it would have been Tully, Arn, uh, Flair maybe. I don't know. Uh, do you, do you think this was too much of a dusty finish or it was a, a brilliant finish? It was just fucked up because he didn't bleed more. It was, it was a terrible finish. And let me tell you how I know it was a terrible finish. This is the one thing I remember from that whole night more than any. When Jr. and I left the arena, when we were walking out, you know, from the ringside area, yeah, fans wanted to kick our ass. They were mad at us. Yeah. And I remember going in the back and saying, Jim, that, that we've done something wrong here, buddy, because these people are mega pissed. They are pissed. And if you'll recall, when we're talking and to go back and look at the show and we're, we're kind of wrapping things up, the fans had left quickly. Yeah. They were pissed. And the fans were legitimately pissed at us. And I remember saying that to Jim and Jim agreed. And I said something to Dusty and Dusty didn't really give me a reaction about it. I said, Dream, you know, that's uh, – these fans are really upset about this. And he kind of, I don't know if he shrugged, but he didn't really respond to me. But there was legitimate heat on me and Jim leaving the ring. And there shouldn't have been. That's, that's the last thing. It should have to be pissed off at us. That told me they were pissed off at our promotion. Yeah. That night. That was, that was a terrible finish. And it was a terrible finish based on the fact that we had gone through battles in theory, when you when you think about them devising this plan, it's it's maybe not a bad idea. We had gone through terrible battles with athletic commissions and blood before. Where they would complain. Uh, give you a story. Uh, same night, I was talking about the Great American Bash in Philadelphia and the, uh, the arena, the uh, stadium shows that we did. The Great American Bash in Philadelphia, one of the uh, – 
I think Dusty may have bled early. Somebody bled earlier. And one of the athletic commissioners, I, I know he was, he had his hair sleeve, had silver hair, had his hair slicked back. You know, athletic commissioners were seen as, you know, just pains in the asses. Right. Guys who just wanted a handout. And one of the athletic commissioners went in the, the locker room and said something to Dusty at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. And Dusty told him to go fuck himself. And the commissioner said, we're closing this one down. This show is closed down. And I remember being down there, and I remember Jimmy saying, is there something we can do? He said, no. He said, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of this bleeding. He said, we're shutting down this show right now. Have your ring announcer go out and announce that. And finally, Jimmy convinced him to keep the show going on. And I remember thinking, man, this guy is wielding a lot of power. And I remember Doug Dillinger saying to me very calmly, he said, the show would have gone on. He said, we would have locked that son of a bitch in a room, but the show would have gone on. So I can remember the, uh, the State Athletic Commission of Pennsylvania wanting to shut us down in 87 and that being a problem every time we went to one of these places that had this bullshit athletic commission. And that was, you know, that was the reason that, that Vince basically exposed the business because the athletic commissions. The athletic commissions knew it was not a real sport. But they still wanted to have their lend their hand into it. And that commissioner in Philadelphia, who was going to shut us down at the Great American Bash in 1987, I'm I'm dead sure. Did you ever see the movie Rocky Balboa? Sure. Not one of the greatest ones. But Rocky went to the Pennsylvania Sports Commission to try to get a license. And the guy with his silver hair slicked back in the center of that was still was that same guy who was going to shut us down. I don't think that was an actor. I think that was a real Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission guy years later. Wow. Yeah. So so anyway, that's the backstory of the problems that we had with athletic commissions. And uh, I, I don't think it was uh, in theory have trying to put the I think what happened there was we were trying to put the heat on the athletic commission. We ended up getting the heat put on us instead of the commissioner. Meltzer wrote, from what I was told, the live crowd, live crowd left so pissed off about the ending that you couldn't compare it with any of the screw job endings of shows of the past. He's exactly right on that. One person remarked it was the hottest a crowd had left he had seen in 15 years. Again, they wanted to kick my ass. Dusty's idea with the ending, which is an old Roy Shires ending that we used to see two or three times a year, but I haven't seen it used by anyone in nearly a decade at this point, was that the fans would be mad at the athletic commission and not the promotions. But I don't think that the fans differentiate between the two, and that a show like this where the fans travel from around the country, a very high percentage know it is the promotion that is responsible for all outcomes. So there it is. People yep. were fucking mad. Yeah, mad at me, mad at Jim Ross, blaming us because we were obviously employed by the promotion. There was no question. And there was no question that this was all part of the decline of JCP. Uh, Meltzer also wrote, and finally, they've got to make a change in world champion. Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler of our time, and nobody will deny he's been a tremendous champion for most of the past seven years. He's still the best worker in the NWA. However, unless he makes a major change, he is so stale in his current role against the same contenders working the same match and always getting beat 
by keeping the little the title on screw jobs that the title simply doesn't mean what it could. I had thoughts that Luger couldn't have been, wouldn't have been a bad replacement short term, but he's not ready. He's improved to the point where he's passable, and apparently his stamina is no longer a problem. But even against the best wrestler in the world in a single, he's not capable of producing the great match that would be needed from a world champion. I'm not sure Sting is the great worker a lot of fans think he is, but he's a lot better than Luger, and he should be the guy thrust into the championship spotlight unless a flare turn is made, which at least would enable Flair to have fresh matches with Wyndham, Tully, Arn, and Ron Garvin. Tony, is this a fair critique of Ric Flair no, at this not. point in 88? No, it's not. I, I, let me say this, and there's a lot of things that Meltzer writes that I agree with. I think we've said that here, yeah. right? Haven't we? Yeah. And a lot of things that I don't agree with, here's what I don't agree with. Let him take the fucking book and book it. There's so many things that go in to having to book a territory or having to book a promotion that you just don't see. Guys not wanting to do this. Guys injured. Guys not wanting to do that. It's really easy to set and type, man, oh, he's getting old. He's getting stale. We should book him with him. Bullshit. You do it. And then it's a whole lot different world once you do it. So fuck that. I love you when you get fired up. Uh, <laughs> it's worth mentioning that uh, the next year, after saying he's so stale right here and being very critical, man. But can I also say this? Yeah. Can I also go back and, and say this? You mentioned something about Sting, that he is not as over as a greater worker fans think he is. Yeah. What the fuck kind of line is that? If fans think you're a great worker, you're a great worker, right? Yep. What the fuck? What kind of fucking, he must have been on acid when he wrote that one. Uh, he gave Flair a bunch of five-star matches the next year. You know, people talk about 1989 right. as being one of Flair's greatest years ever. The three yeah. matches with Steamboat, the I Quit match from The Clash with Terry Funk. You've got some of his very best work a year later, less than a right. year later. So it's kind of funny to read here. You know, right. and obviously some of this stuff doesn't age well, you know, from, yeah. from Dave or the actual matches. But uh, he was certainly not stale. Uh, random no, fact, he wasn't stale. I, I, again, I don't want to make this a, a thing about Meltzer, but a lot of the stuff he wrote was very, very right, right on, uh, very smart, very educated, very observant. But when he goes into he should book this guy with, you know, stay away from that shit. OK, do what you do best, which most of us never knew what that was. But, uh, you know, stay away from trying to book shit. Uh, let's shift gears here. The, uh, I love shifting gears. Random fact I want to throw out here. The WWE owns the robe that Ric Flair wore for this event, and they display it at access events for WrestleMania. So wow. uh, if you'd like to see this robe, odds are pretty good it'll be at access this year for WrestleMania. The robe that Lex Luger wore was also made by the same lady who made Rick's, Olivia Walker. That robe was sold on the cable TV show Hardcore Pawn a few years ago, and it now belongs to the world's biggest Lex Luger fan who happens to live in South Carolina. Uh, shout out to Brian Rogers. Uh, Chamberlain of THE said this show did a 2.2 buy rate, which comes out to about 190,000 homes. Uh, so this is profitable for all involved. Uh, he says, we feel that if we can get double the number of buys with our first pay-per-view show that most concerts draw, we're on the right track. The show did its best business in the South, then in descending order, the Midwest, the Northeast, and the West. 
uh, all key pay-per-view companies were on board to carry the next show in December, which turned out to be Starcade. So overall, Great American Bash 1988, what do you remember, Tony? Where do you rank it? Well, I, I rank it uh, as far as a good show, or, or I rank it as memorable shows. I rank it as, as one of my most memorable shows working for the Crockett's for a number of reasons. Number one, I thought uh, JR and I did a pretty darn good job. I thought we could do a good job. We did a good job of filling time uh, when they were trying to get uh, things ready to go into the ring. I enjoyed working with Jim, but I think I remember most of all because of the heat at the end that was directed towards the promotion. Right. And I, and I think I saw that, that event as an event that uh, helped us spiral downwards as Jim Crockett Promotions. But well, I would rank it as a as – a, other than that, take away the, uh, the lame finish at the end. We had some very good – as even read that Meltzer said had some tremendous heat in those, in those matches. Great fan reaction. That was genuine fan reaction. And Jim and I tried to call this event like a legitimate sports event. We didn't try to be flashy or entertaining. We tried to call it as a legitimate sports event. And I think that's kind of what made us different at that time from the WWF. Uh, what made you different was the porn stash. Let's address it. How awesome okay, was you your mustache? Address the porn stash? How awesome was that mustache? I, I don't know. I, I never had a mustache until I started working for Jim Crockett Promotions. And Jimmy Crockett told me, he said, we'd like for you to grow a mustache. And I said, okay. He said, because we think that you'd look too young without a mustache. And this will make you look a little bit older, a little bit more respectable. So I did. I grew the mustache. My wife stopped kissing me. And so there are some good things going out of growing a mustache. Well, you still have five kids. How the fuck did that happen? Well, it seemed, I don't know. She would have pop out a kid every time I hit the road. So there. Have I, you seen my kids? Uh, no, but no, I've, you heard, I've heard about the water buffaloes that Arn Anderson used to talk about. Okay. And let me also add to this. I, I know you always try to go down that, that dirty path with me, and I'm not going to let you do it here. Can we get a free mustache rod shirt? <laughs> I feel like that's what we need for you over at prowrestlingtees.com forward slash WHW. Can I finish this story? Yes. All right. When I went to the WWE in 1990, Vince had me shave it. And he said, you don't mind shaving it, do you? And I said, no. He said, because Gene Okerlund's got a mustache. I would like to have only one announcer with a mustache. And there you go. So there's the story of the mustache. So, a porn star mustache. And now I've got a now I've got a beard and a mustache, kind of like my idol, idol Conrad Bullshit <laughs> Let's talk about <laughs> next week's bullshit. We've got a poll going up. If you're listening right now, it's already up. It's on Twitter. It's at WHW Monday. We've got four cool topics for you. Poll topic number one, Starcade 88. This would be the next major show after our Great American Bash. It's the next pay-per-view they did with Turner Home Entertainment. Right. Uh, Starcade 88. And this would have been uh, right after the completion of the sale. What do you remember real quickly about Starcade 88, Tony? I remember it's the first time I met Jim Hurd. He showed up in one of his trench coats and a tie looking like a, a big-time TV executive. So there That's you go. what I remember about that. I remember I worked with uh, Magnum TA as well. We've also got poll topic number two, number two Wrestle War 1991. February 24th uh, was the 26-year anniversary. We just passed that over the weekend. What do you remember about Wrestle War 1991, Tony? Nothing. 
I, I remember Klondike Bill had this girl. Well, the we had this kielbasa. There you go. Uh, real quick, I should mention that uh, that was main evented by the Four Horsemen taking on uh, Sting, Brian Pillman, and the Steiner brothers uh, inside of a War Games match. Uh, the uh, undercard had the Freebirds and Doom, Lex Luger and Dan Spivey, Stan Hansen and Big Van Vader, Terrence Taylor and the Z-Man, the Young Pistols with the Royal Family, Buddy Landell and Dustin Rhodes. Uh, lots of fun stuff on this yeah. match, to say the least. Uh, I, I know what I remember about this. I remember I was a miserable son of a bitch during this time. Why's that? Because I thought I made a horrible mistake by leaving the WWE. <laughs> I'm serious. I would. That's a story in itself. Poll topic number three. Uh, just announced going into the Hall of Fame. We're so happy for him. Diamond Dallas Page will cover his 97 through 99. So we're not going to get all of his career in WCW, but we'll get when he first started to catch fire in 1997 until he wins the world title in 1999. Poll topic number three is DDP. Uh, and then, last but certainly not least, we've had lots of requests to cover this guy, so how about a whole episode for him? Poll topic number four, Randy Macho Man Savage's 1995. You may remember he debuted in December of 94. We'll cover his debut in December of 94, all the way through Starcade 95, where he headlined that show, Macho Man's 1995, as poll topic number four. So, real quick, the recap. Here's what you need to do. Go to WHW Monday on Twitter and right pinned to the top. You'll see the poll topics. Starcade 88, WrestleWar 91, Diamond Dallas Page 97 to 99, and Randy Macho Man Savage 1995. If we had to pick one of these, Tony, which one of these would you like to cover next week? Uh, I think I would like to cover Starcade 88 only because it was it was my last big event for Jim Crockett Promotions. Before I went to the WWE, I would be at the WWE two months later. So there you go. That's what he wants. Hook him up. He's on Twitter at Tony Schiavone 24 on Twitter. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. Our show where you can vote on this very poll is at WHW Monday. We'd love to have your support and go ahead and visit Blue Apron and Leather by Dan. Uh, those promo codes are Tony. So blueapron.com forward slash Tony. And then just click on the WHW logo over at leatherbydan.com. But most importantly, if you'd like to hear from Tony and him use fuck like a comma for you, go to prowrestlingtees.com forward slash WHW. Pick yourself up a shirt, including the brand new Blockmaster. Anything else we want to address for you this week, Tony? Yeah, I'm, uh, my daughter's getting married uh, March of 2018. Uh, and remember, i got to pay for that wedding or my wife will kill me. It's about that time, Tony. Uh, it's about that time? Well, I would like to say, watch out. Klondike Bill has a kibasi. It's wet. It's glistening. It's dripping. And here comes Conrad with a chair. It's above his head. The tape is easy rolling. We're desperately out of time. The rule of NLW Radio never stops. 
Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. 